You're listening to Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Find artworks, stories, past episodes, and more at artuk.org. You can also follow us on social media on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. Are you into zines? What about comics? From medieval illuminated manuscripts to zines you can pick up at your local art fair, artists have had a special relationship with books for centuries. I came across some examples of books that had been illustrated by artists like David Hockney and Mark Chagall, and I thought today we could pursue some interesting questions around artists working as illustrators and our ideas around the difference between the two. Artisans of various kinds have been involved in um, decorating books or illustrating them in some fashion uh, ever since the beginning of books, uh, which we'll take back to the, the current era, you know, around the time of the birth of Christ. And um, but we don't until we get the definition of an artist in the modern sense, which happens in the 18th century. I can't say that we have artist books per se until perhaps we get to William Blake. That's Jalene Grove, an artist and researcher in the history of illustration. So William Blake is this amazing Romantic era artist who was given that designation as uh, someone who's working in an autonomous fashion, and he made his own books sort of self-assigned, if you will, and they're lavishly illustrated. What kinds of books were they, like, on what kinds of subjects? Well, he is, well, some people have hypothesized that he was actually schizophrenic, Um, so he was a bit of a mystic, and his books are generally spiritual in nature, but there's also Mm -hmm. themes of nationalism in his work as well. William Blake painted several biblical scenes that one could argue are illustrative in nature, including his famous work, The Body of Abel, found by Adam and Eve, which shows Cain fleeing after the murder of his brother. In 1825, however, he was explicitly commissioned to illustrate Dante's Divine Comedy, a literary classic that takes the reader on a poetic journey through hell. In a palette of blues and reds, Blake created over a hundred illustrations for the poem left in varying stages of completion when he died. So if Blake is the early predecessor of artist books, what came next? How did artists develop their book projects? We don't really see self-assigned book projects by artists or illustrators until we get further into the 19th century. And this really starts to ramp up towards the 1890s. But we have uh, an early predecessor in the 1870s with Edouard Manet. Okay, so okay, so there's a couple of things interesting here. Um, I definitely want to go into the Manet um, books, but then you're also using this term self-assigned books. That might mm-hmm. be good to clarify what, what that means. Uh, so I'm referring to um, books that have been invented by the artists themselves and not necessarily assigned by somebody else, although with artist books, as a category, definitely it begins with enterprising publishers and writers who want mm-hmm. to make different kinds of books than what was available to the trade market. Normally, an illustrator would work uh, on assignment from what today we would call an art editor or art director. They would be mm-hmm. asked to provide images for a publication. In the modern sense, illustration really begins with the rise of the mass media, illustrated mass media, and mm-hmm. uh, took off in the 1830s. 
and it was really illustrated newspapers that most illustrators were providing work for, uh, as well as the covers of um, books that were issued chapter by chapter to people. That's actually how Dickens starts. Is uh, You didn't buy a whole Dickens book, let alone three-volume set. First installments of his stories would come out in little paper-bound booklets, and those had a picture on the cover. Coming back to Edouard Manet, you may recognize him as the celebrated French realist and painter of works like Le Déjeuner sur l'herbe and Bar at the Follies Bergère, which are part of the Courtauld Gallery collection. Perhaps slightly lesser known is the fact that he also did quite a bit of printed illustration work. He was actually providing illustrations for leading uh, avant-garde periodicals of the day. So he's one of the first people to have his work reproduced by mechanical reproduction as opposed to wood engraving. Uh, so his work appears as what we would call a, a gillotype uh, that was uh, created by an, an engraver, an artisan by the name of Gilo. And um, it, was, it was the new... Uh, way to get pictures reproduced in many multiples in a, ma a magazine. So Manet was already working as an illustrator. Uh, and the advantage to that technology, as opposed to the earlier wood engraving, was that it preserved exactly what the artist did. So Manet could make a quick ink sketch with brush and ink, for instance, very spar spare, very sparse, and showing his own hand. Uh, sort of like you could, the way a person's handwriting shows their individuality. So does a brush painting, for instance, or any drawing. That was lost in the normal engraving process, but with this new technology, you could see exactly what the artist had done. So we get uh, a, a renewed interest in this age for the artist's autonomous autographic touch. He's doing that, and then along comes this poet guy uh, by the name of Stéphane Mallarmé. Stéphane Mallarmé. Mm -hmm. And Mallarmé is also very interested in changing the way culture looks and acts. And he's a poet, and he's a translator. So he embarks to translate Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven. This was kind of a greatest hits of the period. Okay. <laughs> and he asked Manet to illustrate it. Manet created dark, moody illustrations that reflected the tone of Poe's famous poem. The style is painterly, with swaths of black ink and dynamic lines dashed across scenes. It also appears that Mallarmé may have been his inspiration for the drawing of the main character, as the distinct mustache is very similar to the poet's own. With all of this talk of artists working as occasional illustrators, I thought it would be good to address the elephant in the room. Aren't illustrators artists too? Why does there seem to be a separation between artists, in quotations, and illustrators? We're talking a European tradition here where people who are tradesmen or women uh, were considered mm -hmm. to be inherently of a lesser class. If you worked with your hands, you were lesser, lower class than people who worked with their heads. So in the European tradition, there was a, a differentiation between those two kinds of work. And uh, so people who were aligned with engraving, for instance, they came out of a guild tradition, as did painters for a really long time. Uh, and they, the, in, as the print production, print technologies evolved between, say, 1450 and 1900, we see a specialization in skills where one person would take care of ideas and the other person would take care of execution. 
so engravers who were responsible for taking the idea and putting it onto a printing plate of some kind were tradesmen. And the ones who were designing everything and had the uh, privilege to come up with fresh ideas and so on and to tell everyone else what to do, um, they were artists and enjoyed more privilege in life and were considered of a higher status and probably also had a higher education in many cases. But that is, that's, that's making it sound very polarized for the point of, of informing. There was, of course, a big sliding scale between those things. Um, someone like Blake was making his own plates. And there were certainly people trained as engravers who worked their way up to become considered artists. And the first person that we can really point to who took that to heart was Albrecht Dürer. And he was a wood engraver who uh, was trained as a goldsmith, therefore a tradesman. And he eventually took wood, in, wood cutting as far as it could go, uh, right around the year 1500. So his wood cuts are extremely finished and polished. He signed them with his own monogram, which he inherently used as a logo so that everyone could identify that monogram, uh, from that monogram that this print that they held in their hands was the genuine article from him. Of course, he was pirated mm -hmm. all the time. So he's actually one of the first people to ask for a protection against being copied by rivals. So he actually represents the beginning of copyright. But Durer was also very vocal about the difference between uh, engraving and making prints as a reproductive technology uh, versus putting in ideas and being a laborer of concepts. And he elevated himself as an artist that way because he created his own images. He designed mm -hmm. them, came up with the ideas, and then himself, and probably with apprentices, would create the plates. And he controlled the distribution. So he was a businessman as well, working for himself. So that puts him much higher up in the social hierarchy of the day uh, to almost a gentleman. Not quite, because he's still, you know, a merchant who is dealing with money and commerce and production of something. But uh, that distinction between the laborer and the thinker persists all the way through, I would argue, even till today. So yeah. out of that, we get this prejudice against illustrators because so many of them are working very closely with tradespeople. And because there was this idea that many illustrators, are, or most illustrators, or some people would even say all illustrators, although I would question this, are following someone else's orders. So someone has yeah. commissioned the illustrator to go make something. They want it this size, that color, this big. Illustrator goes out and executes it. So that, mm -hmm. that became kind of the stereotype of the illustrator. But illustrators everywhere would argue that no, actually, uh, they put in quite a bit of their own ideas, even when art directed, and that their work should also be considered uh, an intellectual labor, not just a wrist, as we say. Absolutely. Because if, if, if there wasn't that creativity there, there'd be no difference between any of them, right? You could go to any illustrator in the world and expect to get the same output. <laughs> well, that, that's like, not going to happen. You know? <laughs> well, no, what, but I'm saying with that with that logic, right? Where you say, yeah. okay, you're only doing what I tell you to do, so it, it shouldn't. And with that logic, yeah. it wouldn't matter who you went to. So obviously, there there's mm -hmm. clearly a lot of creativity coming. That said, there were schools or 
studios or production facilities or even uh, painterly workshops, studios, uh, where the people employed there were expected to work in a house style that was set by the master uh, or by Mm -hmm. your boss. And you were hired explicitly because you could do that. In the 20th century, there was, for instance, an a advertising artist named Haddon Sundblom in Chicago. He, with other men, had uh, studio agencies, which is a group of artists working under one roof, paid a salary, and they put out illustrations that would be used in advertising because at that time, I'm talking the 1920s through the 60s, advertising was a big, big, big business in Chicago. And uh, if you joined that studio, and although Sunbloom paired with many people over the years, today it's usually referred to as the Sunbloom studio, uh, you were expected to mimic Sunbloom's style, which was very bright, breezy, um, full of life, full of sunlight. Uh, People described his style as buttery or like mayonnaise. And every artist who went through there had to work in that because that is what the clientele was coming there for it was their specialty and people who trained there went out and yes their styles developed a little bit uh independently after that but they um they always maintain that dna they maintain that dna of of the sunblown hand in their own work so people like gil elvgren for instance who uh is famous for pinups <laughs> After Manet, artists become more interested in exploring this relationship between books and their fine art practice. As we move into the modern era, we see the birth of the Livre d'Artiste. The Livre d'Artiste come after Edouard Manet and are considered to be the fruit of that early production by him and Mallarmé. And pretty much any big name modern artist from Europe um, dabbled or went seriously into making Livre d'Artiste, which is just French for uh, artist book. So uh, we would, for instance, name Picasso or Ernst Kirchner, for instance. So, so what what is an artist book, and why would why did this become a bit of a fad? So there had always been book collectors. I mean, dating right back to the Middle Ages, people were commissioning and collecting and hoarding beautiful books. And uh-huh. in the nineteenth century, when Mallarmé comes along, he's he's actually a very potent. Uh, uh, how shall I put it, proselytizer for a different kind of book. And because we've got literature changing, poetry is changing, uh, they want a different look and feel. Uh, so that's that was kind of the harbinger was the, the collaboration with Manet. And gradually, it didn't catch on right away. It took about another 20 years. And then other productions started coming out where people were pairing images with poetry and arguing that instead of being subservient to the text, which it had been assumed the illustrators always were subservient to the text they were following, now Mm -hmm. the artwork would be on the page and included in the book uh, equivalent to the words. So this was a new status for illustrators that's coming out as well as a greater range of styles and these new avant-garde styles uh, to be included, which were not um, wanted in the popular press because uh, around the turn of the century, 1900 to 19, oh, right up to the 50s, mass audiences really had a difficult time getting their head around things like cubism and impressionism and so on. So mm-hmm. if, if someone doing that kind of work wanted to work out to a wider public, 
the popular press was not open to them because the mass readership still expected realistic pictures. They weren't sure what to make of cubism. But the, uh, the more rarefied avant-garde poetry and fine art presses that were starting to emerge, they were quite open to it because they wanted new stuff. So it's really a product of changing times, changing ideas about what art is and what artists should be. So we're moving to a point where we're seeing the artist break free of rules. So people are rejecting all those uh, academies and rule-bound ideas of what art was. They're rejecting the idea that art has to be about beauty and beautiful things, but mm. it can comment on the world and uh, delve into the, the darker side of the human psyche. It can address issues such as unpopular wars. And this greater range of expression is also interesting to poets because poets have always treated those themes as, along with the beautiful. So, uh, it, and people like pictures. So there was, there was just this new opportunity to pair poetry and other texts with images in a new way. At the same time, you've got a big movement uh, that really comes out of an arts and crafts idea of the book beautiful, the idea that uh, books are precious, sacred, wonderful objects of art in themselves, or should be, or can be, and that we should improve over the kinds of books you could buy on any old bookstall that were kind of quickly put together and sold for profit with things that were labored over and beloved and designed to the nth degree. And there was an audience for this because around the turn of the century, there's a, a time of great wealth, uh, a time of interest in people and social distinction and showing their taste, uh, not just by studying you know, various realms of knowledge, but to have the objects that prove that they have that taste and support their identity as people who are connoisseurs and educated and up to the moment in what's going on in art and culture. So there's a press in France that begins to produce things. Um, it's run by a man named Ambroise Vollard. And he begins to ask artists and poets to come together and create books together. And one of the most famous, or shall I say infamous, books of this nature is called Parallelamum by Paul Verlaine. And it was illustrated by Pierre Bonnard, who was a post-impressionist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And why did it become infamous? <laughs> why is it infamous? Well... Uh, so for a few reasons, actually. Uh, first off, it's just a subject matter. It's, it's a story of a love affair between two women. So uh, that was lesbians coming out of the closet for uh, an artistic, elite, educated audience. And um, I'm being quite bold about it. Nothing's particularly hidden here. This is a time when society is very much in flux, uh, but Paris, of course, uh, also was had or was stereotyped as being a, a place to find houses of pleasure. As we already saw um, in the works of Toulouse-Lautrec, he was already going into brothels and so on and drawing women in bed together and so on. So mm -hmm. these themes have been circulating for some time in print culture. It's, it's not actually very new as a topic for a Parisian audience at this time. Uh, but to, to put it into a very expensive book and present it as art 
because Toulouse no Trek, he's doing posters and his own sketches and so on. Uh, that's a bit different. Uh, but this is somebody taking this somewhat salacious subject matter and uh, elevating it to fine craft, if you will. Yeah. So the book is controversial also because of the way um, Bernard and uh, the publisher decided to lay out the pages. So never mind that it's got pictures of women making love together. Uh, it's printed in pink. <laughs> the, the pictures are printed in pink. And that was revolutionary because uh, traditionally illustrations in books had always been printed in black and white. And mm -hmm. there were strong prejudices about that in that people felt that uh, proper illustration should support text and fit nicely with the text instead of contrasting to the text. So right. that's that <clears throat> idea you were just talking about of it being more mm -hmm. subservient to the text. Exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah. With William Morris, who'd really led uh, this resurgence in book design in the 1890s, his theory, which was not unique to him, but dating back to other members of the arts and crafts movement uh, beginning in the 1850s, had described or felt that books um, should be likened to architecture. So just as a church is put together with, um, you know, attention to symmetry and proportion and each part fits into another part in a perfect harmonious whole so should the mm -hmm. book be a pocket cathedral in the words of burn jones uh who did a lot of illustrating with morris uh so what we see here instead in in the bonnard thing is uh no architecture particularly <laughs> the images sprawl across the page they run under the text and some spreads not just around it they crowd mm. edges quite uncomfortably. There is no respect for margins. <laughs> so they're just breaking all the book rules. So uh, this represents a turning point or a split, if you will, among bibliophiles, which is people who love books and are collecting them. So some people follow the William Morris book as cathedral model, and they uh, stick to the idea that books have a traditional format and don't mess with it. It's perfect for a reason and that the image should uh, harmonize with the text and serve the text. With what Bernard and the publisher uh, Ambrose Willard here have done is said, nope, artists should have free reign just as the poets do that they're illustrating and um, they should be able to break rules if they feel like it and express in the full expanse of the double page spread uh, as they see fit. So mm. we have this privileging of the uh, artistic avant-garde sensibility that comes forward and uh, critics would argue dominates the text and takes it over, upstages it, if you will. This experimental bookmaking carried on into the 20th century with the futurists, Dadaists, Surrealists, and other avant-garde artists dabbling in the medium. Sometimes the books came in small print runs and sometimes they might be one of one. With the Livre d'Artiste, the book gives way to the illustrator to become a work of art, and while the tradition may not be quite at the same scale as it once was, it evolved to live on in other ways. This uh, Livre d'Artiste tradition really kind of rose and then peaked all before the Second World War, and the war kind of shut it down because it was so disruptive, and, and then values changed after that. But there is still a very active community of people making fine, fine books. The thing about the Leap d'Artiste is that generally they are made using traditional printmaking uh, methods and, and not necessarily whatever the going high-speed industrial print method is. 
and that they uh, physically resemble the kinds of hand-pulled prints and so on that, that people have collected for a very long time and used as art objects framed and hung on the wall or in a portfolio, for instance. Uh, and so that, that sensibility, um, that desire to make books as an alternative or accompaniment to your painting or your sculpture practice, because there are sculptors too who do artist books, um, that's never disappeared, and I hope it never does, because I think that it's a really interesting and important way to move your work out in the world. Uh, but we're now at a point where, for quite a long time now, we've seen illustrators becoming more interested in exhibiting in galleries with their illustration and making works that transcend that, that largely often imaginary barrier between illustration and painting. And there's a thriving scene out there of people making artist books, handmade books, um, but also self-published books. Uh, so if you look around for festivals or um, zine fairs and so on in your neighborhood, you will probably find some kind of paper show or gathering of people doing comics, making zines, making self-published books of some kind in very low numbers. And they'll get together, you know, here and there once a year uh, and do what they call and 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 participants language tabling where you have a table it's like a flea market you put all your stuff out uh, the public shows up and you sell it so that's actually a thriving economy and a, a very important part of illustration today do you feel that illustrators are making inroads in terms of like you said being wanting to be wanting to be have their work featured in galleries and that sort of thing do you think that that attitude towards illustration is changing totally it is yeah it's uh, already, I think, 10 years since the graphic novelist Chris Ware was included in a Whitney Biennial. So, um, for sure. Uh, my, uh, where I live, uh, near Toronto in Canada, the Art Gallery of Greater Ontario has held exhibitions of graphic novelists as well. So, as comics and graphic novels have become more acceptable in the fine art venues, I think we're going to see more and more illustration exhibitions. I've certainly seen an uptick even of displays of Norman Rockwell's work and other lesser known illustrators. There's more and more interest because the prejudice that was at its peak perhaps in the 50s is really starting to wane and people are beginning to realize that the animosity that was felt towards illustrators in the 20th century in particular uh, was a product of its own time that was really used dialectically to elevate modern art because it needed something to contrast against to give itself a reason for existing. Uh, yeah. So that divided them much more than they ever really were, as you can see by all these modern artists who also put artwork into books that we might call illustrated. My thanks to Jolene for sharing these stories and shedding some light on the relationship between artists and illustration. I'll be linking out to her website and sharing some other images related to this discussion on the Art UK website, so be sure to head over to artuk.org for more information. If you enjoyed this episode, you may also enjoy episode 11, where I speak to Cedar Lewison about artists who've made cookbooks. 
You know the drill by now. This is the part where I ask you to please rate and subscribe to this series wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps the series get heard by more people. You could also do us a favor by telling a friend about us. We're on a mission to spread art to the masses. Thank you so much for listening and please join us again next time.